We are continuing our Operation Reconciliation, Becoming Effective Fishers of Men to Bear Fruit That Remains, Incorporating Productive Strategies of Evangelism into the Daily Life of the Church. And we're pretty much going to answer that by asking the questions, who is Jesus? Why do I need to receive Jesus? Do I need to exchange my life? What should I expect from this new life? How do I get started? And am I joining a church? Uh, So... Actually, we're not going to answer, am I joining the church? The answer is yes. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. But uh, we're going to try to answer all those questions. So last week, we kind of used Luke 7.47. Does everybody remember that off the top of their head? About uh, Jesus and the prostitute in the Pharisee's house? Yeah. What is it, Josiah? Or what's the concept? Or anything close to it? He who is forgiven much loves much. Yeah, so, and Jesus makes the claim in, you know, where I pull out of uh, Luke seven forty seven. whoever's, I always said, I read it again, which is kind of funny how the mind works, is I always said whoever's forgiven much loves much, but he actually says whoever's forgiven little loves little. So he says the exact opposite of what I've been quoting. <laughs> uh, but same concept. So uh, if you've been forgiven little or you perceive you've been forgiven little, you love very little. And if you perceive that you've been forgiven very much, there's other proverbs, or not proverbs, but parables that Jesus told about that. Um, then, you know, if you're forgiven much, then you will love much, you know. Uh, so we took last week to all talk about, like, how bad the bad news really is. And so this is only to be rightly understood. This whole teaching today is in, uh, you know, contradistinction to how bad the bad news is. And we saw that uh, we're, you know, if we talk about just our fallen nature, if we remember the seven things we list on the um, Bible memory sheet, and we might have went over them last week, can't quite remember, of like, what's the state of fallen man? We're unrighteous, we're totally deceived, we're hiding from God, uh, we're independent or rebellious, we're slaves to sin, uh, we're... Uh, dead, spiritually dead, and what's the seventh one I'm missing, I think? Separated from God, God. yeah. Uh, So that's like, and there's no hope in any of us ever working out our own salvation or coming to God on our own accord. Uh, We absolutely can't do it. You know, we looked at, like, God is holy and perfect and just, therefore, like, we can't even come to approach Him or be near Him lest we totally be disintegrated and uh, judged. He's, he's perfect. He can't deal with imperfection. He can't have that draw near to him. He's holy, and we're not, right? And that's really, really bad news for all of us and for everybody. So uh, the good news is, we're just going to say the good news is, uh, which I actually uh, get this response, response a lot, uh, when I ask people, like, so what's your, you know, people who, uh, you know, from my perception, is people who don't know, like, maybe, or perceive, if I just met them, maybe haven't read a lot of scripture or something, and, you know, I usually present them, like, you know, if they say they're Christians or they're going to a church, you know, because it's all, try to be rightfully understood in evangelism, and I ask them, so, like, you know, Romans one sixteen six Romans one sixteen says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
uh, of God to save to all those who believe, right? So you have to believe the gospel. So I asked the person, like, what's the gospel, right? If that all makes sense to the person, like, yeah, that's what Romans 1.16 says. You believe the gospel and it's the power that God uses to save those for all who believe, whether Jews or Greeks. So you have to believe the gospel. And then I ask them, like, what's the gospel? And usually, like, a pretty shallow answer, though accurate, <laughs> answer is uh jesus right which is the that is the correct answer jesus is the good news the good news is that uh everything we're going to be looking at jesus christ right he's the only solution but like what we looked at uh you know in the workshops last week is like uh yeah mormons believe jesus is the answer jehovah's witness believe jesus is the answer uh relativists would believe that jesus is the answer as well but that doesn't really mean anything to them, right? So um, we have to define the terms. What does scripture say about who Jesus is? Jesus is the incarnation of the word of the gospel, uh, you know, by which men are, men are saved. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation, right? So uh, we're going to do a little bit of Christology because as we go out and evangelize, um, you know, this does make an impact on what we're portraying, whether we can do it clearly, you know, concisely, and in a conversation makes a huge difference. Uh, the deeper we understand it, I figure the deeper we can convey it, or the easier we can convey it. Does that make sense? So uh, there is like, who was it? Uh, was it Andy teaching on Sunday? Uh, that like, we do have to have the right information, <laughs> right? Uh you know, they say, like, believe in, if I tell, I don't know, Span who knows Spanish here? How do you say believe, believe in Jesus in Spanish? Jesus, right? So they might think Jesus is somebody else, right? I might think Jesus is, uh, insert any inappropriate <laughs> thing you could possibly say. <laughs> Sunday school a couple weeks ago? That's a concept. Uh, yeah, and like um, in Juan Colors Ortiz's book, uh, Disciple, you know, the first and second chapter, the first chapter or introduction, I can't remember, it's all about like, you know, he uses the Spanish to show that, you know, Senor is just like Mr., you know, doesn't really convey. And uh, so what you believe, the information has to be correct and it has to be applied correctly. Right. So, uh you know, we're just going to go through, through some basic Christology, right? Study on Jesus. First of all, like the good news is that like, uh, so the good news about the gospel is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, was a propitiation and expiation for our sins, and that we can be reconciled to God by him, by his work, by his faith, uh, by his actions and his ministry, right? So everything that he did, right, that has nothing to do anything with me so far. <laughs> except for he did it for me. That's essentially the good news in a nutshell. Uh, now, if you just go straight forward and tell somebody that, apart from the bad news, what's the logical conclusion that people are going to get to? If you just tell them the good news. There's only good news and no bad news? I don't, yeah. There's no problem. There's no problem. There's no yeah, if you just go up to people and say, Jesus died for your sins, I'm great. Thanks, man. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> right at you, brother. Uh, thanks for letting me know. Um, so, like, 
think about that like real quick. So the first thing we're going to go on for, uh, is like Jesus Christ is God. He's deity. He's the sec- second person of the Trinity. Like that's huge news because, uh, you know, one thing we looked at last week, I can't remember if we did it in the teaching or in the more in the workshop, but you know, if you just look at it from like a critical, uh, mental standpoint of Christianity versus every other religion, Christianity stands alone on so many points. It's inconceivable to think about like, you know, that's actually one of the things I show in meeting with people in, in like investigative, you know, evangelistic Bible studies is that like just the ideas and concepts that are wrapped around or wrapped into Christianity, such as like the Trinity or that like God came in the flesh is like so far outside of every other religion that every other religion would be like, that's inconceivable and that's doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right? Uh, but that like God would like actually love and dwell with his people so much and want to redeem them that he comes into the creation that he created in order to redeem them and reconcile them is huge news because nobody else had even from a mental standpoint thought about that. Now there's like anthropomorphic religions out there that like, you know, the Greek gods uh, were human-like and interacted with humans and some of the humans, you know, uh, ascended to deity, right? And that's what Mormonism is too, that you can ascend to deity, but that God himself would come down and dwell with his people uh, in the way that Christ did is like, is wild, right? So, uh Let's start here. We'll go to, uh, does anybody have a Bible with them on their phones or physical copies? Uh, we'll do like Kristen, then we'll jut over to Daniel, and we'll go back and forth. Uh, Kristen, can you get John 1, 1 through 3, and then Daniel, this one's not on the paper. paper. Can you get John eight fifty eight? Can we start? Yeah, go ahead, whenever you got it. All right, John 1, 1, 2, 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Yeah, so every other pseudo-Christian cult uh, wildly uh, uses their other scriptures, uh, as every pseudo-Christian cult has, to mistranslate this. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses was a God, but... Uh, does anybody know why that wouldn't matter if they if they changed it to a God or was God? In this selection of verses, that you, it still shows that Jesus is deity. Satan. What would be like? So the Jehovah's Witness changed it to in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God, where it clearly says was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and all things that were created were created through Him, and there was nothing that was created that was not created through Him. So even if they changed it to a God, how does this scripture still show that Jesus is deity? And he created him. Yeah, he, it says everything that was created. Well, if Jesus was created, he's not part, then he'd be part of everything. So he can't be something that created all of creation if he's part of creation. Uh, and there's not anything that was created that wasn't created through him. Well, he would apply to that as well, right? So uh, it is... Uh, like, what was that cult that we had at the Bible study? Oh, the Way International. Uh, they do the same thing, right? They're uh, Aryans. They're modern-day Aryans. 
uh, who believe that Jesus is not God, that he is either an archangel or, uh, or a human that ascended to deity and he was the first one, uh, or that either way is that like there's one God and one person, all pseudo-Christian cults, or a lot of pseudo-Christian cults do this, is there's one God and one person, and then Jesus was created first, and then all of creation. So there was something before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that was before that, that we find out later through either other scriptures or mistranslating other scriptures farther on, that there was something before that, and it wasn't you know, God and his triune uh, essence communing with himself in perfect harmony for all eternity past. Uh, that He was like created, creating something, and that was that something was Jesus, right? So uh, this like this one alone shows that Jesus is deity. Uh, but go ahead with John eight fifty eight, and then we're going to look at this uh, on the screen behind us. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." Yeah, we hear like uh, a lot about Jesus' "I am" statement. So why is that huge? That Jesus said before Abraham was, "I am." Yeah. So he, but he doesn't just say before Abraham was, I was. Abraham, that means he's he always has been. Yeah. Refers to what God said to Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah, in Exodus, when Moses says, "Who do I tell the people?" You know, in the burning bush, who I tell the people that uh, is going to deliver us from Egypt, and who are we following? He says, "Tell them I am that I am." <laughs> so Jesus is saying that I'm God. Like it's very clear. The clearest thing about Jesus throughout all of the Gospels is that he's God, like and he's making it very clear. By using that name for himself, he's more than just saying, I've existed for eternity. He's saying, I'm the same God, the yeah. God of Israel. Yeah, he's not just saying, like, I'm a separate God. Or I believe Jesus had a father, but I, I'm just saying, could it be that he did have, not have the fullness yet, the fullness of the Godhead, because God did bless him with the fullness. He said, please the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Yeah. He had just a pushing of God's spirit. The Jews wanted to stone him all the time, and he was speaking in parables because he wasn't offensive, but you have to have faith to believe. Yeah, one of the I things that... Uh, things without faith. Yeah, so Jesus is... We're going to get into that with Jesus' uh, deity and his manhood wrapped up in one just a, uh, person. But... Yeah, so... Uh, Every like everyone else kind of gets this. Every pseudo Christian cult, I should say, gets this wrong. And this is like super important when you're going out evangelizing, right? Because this is the first point. Like if if Jesus wasn't God, then like we're wrecked. Like it's you could like the way the way it would splinter off would be that like God would have to send a representative. If he didn't come, if God didn't come himself, and he sent it to someone else, number one, uh, he's not just. Uh, you could rule out his justice. Uh, and then the ideas you get or the natural conclusions that would follow from if God didn't come himself to redeem and reconcile humans to himself, then he's not a personal God. He's not close. He's not like intimate with his creation, and he, he's far off and distant. Uh, so that Jesus, because Jesus is God, and he clearly makes it known, is like great news because we serve a God who dwells among us. And he doesn't just like leave us, and he doesn't send somebody else. He's not like a father uh, that's like you're having a birthday party, and your dad sends uh, his assistant, <laughs> right? Yeah. Tell Kelly, uh, 
Hey, but Kelly, go tell Bobby that uh, I said happy birthday. Give him this $20 and get him a card. 20000 Yeah. And I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, right? That's not the way it works. Like, he shows, he throws the bar at birthday party. He throws it. He surprises them. Uh, and he gives them way more presents than, he, than they deserve, right? So, uh, you know, one thing I remember, so how many people grew up in a church, like grew up in a Christian how many people were told not to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses when they came to the door? My dad debates them. Yeah. So who I, like I was told not to talk to them because they're very learned. Just me and Bob were the only two? No, my parents told me to tell my belief that Jesus is God. Oh, good. Close the door. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, I grew up in a church, and I, th- I thought this was more common than I guess it is. That's like you don't don't talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They know they study and they know all these things, and uh, just take their pamphlets very nicely and let them go. And I did that for like months as I was being converted, like throughout my whole life. Uh, then as I was being converted to Christ, like, and I was reading through the Bible for like one time, I was like, why wouldn't I talk to them? This is so clear that Jesus is like making himself known that he's God. That like why couldn't like I clearly show that from the scripture. I think, because I think, from my perception, is that uh, just evangelical churches and the churches I specifically grew up in were very low on reading scripture, so I wasn't challenged to read scripture and know that, like, have a defense, like, Peter, like, the whole reason we're doing this is be, have a reason defense for the hope that you have within you, right? Did talking to them go well? Uh, not for them. <laughs> uh, you know? Uh, but this is one of the first ones I brought up, you know, because they say that, like, so the whole idea is like, but the Bible says that God's the Father and Jesus is the Son, therefore he must have been born. Well, if you really play that out, then who's the mother? And if he was created, and if he wasn't created with, uh, with Mary, then, then the implications like that are pretty grotesque. You had to uh, be born of a woman. Yeah, and, but if he was created beforehand and, and he's the Father, then who's the mother? And like a lot of it, just the logic break, breaks down. But it's like, okay, so this is the clearest one I can find. I've got it up here on the screen, John uh, 5, 17, and 18. Uh, but he answered them, My father was working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he, had, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Right? So that's the clear, like, if you don't know how to read the Bible and understand the Old Testament, understand the language of Jesus saying God's his father, then if you didn't even, if you read the entire Old Testament and understood it, and you left out that last part, making himself equal to God, but if you just read, but was calling him, calling God his own father, you would understand all throughout the Old Testament that if God was your father, you were making yourself equal to him, and you were making yourself God, right? Cindy, so did you have something? Yeah. Yeah. They'll still give you a pamphlet, and you can still deem it as heresy. So we have this is just one resource, and this is a very very short list. Um, I didn't print this out because if you want me to, I can send it to you. 
or Deanna can send it to you. But this is, we have a scripture sheet on Jesus' deity where it makes it very clear uh, that Jesus is God. He is the same exact God of the Old Testament Israel, right? Just as Josiah was pointing out. Um, you know, and even besides, if you didn't look at the clear scripture verses where he's very clearly making himself known to be God, that you could uh, uh, look that he received worship, right? He was receiving worship on his, in his trial. Uh, he was put on trial for, for what? Claiming to be God. He, the whole reason he was put on trial, right? Like, so when I started talking to the, when I finally made it reasoned in my brain that I should like obey scripture instead of like the church I grew up in or the, the logic, I shouldn't say that, the logic of the church I grew up in, which I wasn't in at the time, um, I asked him, I was like, well, why did, why was Jesus, why were the Jews seeking to kill him and why was he on trial? And the Jehovah's Witness were like, they kind of like gave me a blank stare. I was like, why was Jesus put to death? And it's because it's very clear that he was put on trial because he was God. And that's what he was saying. And it's very clear, right? So if you can't portray that, you know, as we're out evangelizing and the impact of like, that's the good news. Like, that's also uh, bad news if you we want to think about it, like, because we killed him. <laughs> uh, God came in the flesh and we killed him. Uh, that's not good news. <laughs> uh, but the good news is that he came, right? He came to redeem his people. He didn't send a delegate. He didn't send another federal head that would fail. He didn't send an imperfect being. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a vision. He didn't send another prophet. When he came, he came. He came in the flesh. And he did it. And he fulfilled everything. Right? So, uh, in the New City Catechism, uh, this is the last thing I'm actually going to have on the screen. And then, uh, for this point and the next point, and then, um, you know, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Uh, if your name is Zachary Burks, uh, you know this. Uh, he's probably listening to the podcast. So... <laughs> Uh, in the New City Catechism, so uh, this is the beginning of the second section, which is, you know, the end of the first section is who is the Redeemer, then what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God. They go to Christ's humanity first, but question 23 is, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And this gets to a little bit of the impact of uh, how to portray this. Uh, I do, like, recite when I'm out evangelizing, because people don't know this, because unless they know the Nicene Creed or the New City Catechism or historic catechisms and uh, and and statements of faith, uh, then no one's going to recognize. So I'll like I'll literally quote from like the Nicene Creed, <laughs> you know, uh, but nobody knows. So why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. So that meaning if he wasn't God, it wouldn't be perfect and effective, right? So if God didn't sacrifice himself, if he didn't, let's not, let's not even take the word sacrifice out, if he didn't fulfill all that he needed to be fulfilled in, an, in the relationship, in the covenantal relationship between humans, then it would not be perfect because he is perfect and he is the only perfect and holy one. Therefore, he is the only one that could fulfill it, right? Perfect and effective, right? If it's not perfect, then it couldn't be effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So the idea there is that he could, 
Who could bear the righteous anger of God and survive? Only God himself, right? Any other created being could not, right? Because they, by the nature of being created, right? Mm -hmm. So God is the only one that could bear his own righteous anger and sin uh, and overcome death. Uh, as far as I know it, uh, you know, the way, so scriptures are authority and, and uh, where we find out what's true or not. So... Who like where does life come from? God, you say the breath of God. So go into that. Where do we get that? Because he breathed into Adam and made him a living soul. Yeah. His breath is the Holy Spirit. His voice. Yeah, the Spirit hovered over the waters, and he breathed into Adam, into his nostrils, and we see that as the whole. Because breath, wind, spirit are all the same word, even in. The Hebrew and the Greek, so uh, that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the other two members of the persons of the Holy of the Holy Trinity, uh, are sustaining life. So, uh, you know, when we say, you know, why must He be truly God and and overcome, you know, that He could the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. God's the one that upholds life. Nobody apart from God can uphold life and overcome death. Therefore, logically down the line, God can, is the only one that overcome death. Therefore, he needs to go, and he is the one that redeems us from death because he has the powers of life. Did that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Made sense in my head. It's Good. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, you know, that's imperative, like, as we're out evangelizing and that we understand and hold firm to, like, because uh, there's no other worldview and there's no other religious belief that would believe that, like, God came in the flesh to redeem his people because he's going to do it because he's the holder and sustainer of everything. Every other religion sends a delegate and every other religion you have to do it, right? So the good news is, uh, so far, that God came in the flesh and he, he's going to fulfill everything and he can. Uh, if God didn't come in the flesh, then he wouldn't. Or then that thing or person couldn't, right? All right. Point B, uh, Christ, who is Christ? Uh, and he's man, he's human. He's the second Adam. He's a merciful high priest. So uh, let's go down the line. Kyle, you want to read one? Sure. John one fourteen, And then uh, Abigail, can you get First John 4, verses 1 through 3? We probably won't read all of these because we will try to keep this uh, essentially six-page outline. We'll try to get done by ten. Not making any guarantees. <laughs> nope. Yeah, just Gospel of John, chapter one, verse fourteen. <clears throat> and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Awesome, and uh, Abigail, First John 4, 1 through 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Yeah. Does anybody, I can't remember all the heresies, the early 1st, 2nd century heresies. There's so many. Uh, but there's one, I can't remember what it's called, uh, that Jesus was a spirit, and that Jesus is, like, Jesus didn't get crucified. He wasn't, like, a real human. 
Uh, he didn't come in human flesh, but he was a spirit appearing on in the earth. That was one of the early heresies. Uh, maybe we can find that out. Um, could be something like that. Uh, but the, the Gnostic idea would hold true there that uh, the flat, like God wouldn't be indwelt in flesh because the flesh is, is corrupt, the flesh is evil, the flesh is bad. God wouldn't even touch that, right? So, uh, was it? Docetism. Ah. Know your heresies. <laughs> All right. So we handle this. Again, if your name is Zachary Burks, Burks, you know how to answer this question. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? We answer this in the New City Catechism, question 22. That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. All right, so in human nature, so uh, what's it called that the two natures are wrapped up in uh, one person, his deity and his humanity? Hypostatic. The hypostatic union. So don't use, don't say hypostatic union while you're out sharing the gospel. It's important to know. Yeah, so people don't know what it means when Paul prays that he'd have an opportunity to share the gospel and that he'd be able to proclaim it clearly, be able to clearly proclaim the mysteries uh, mysteries of God uh, and do it boldly. So we have to be able, you guys should, this is something you should think deeply about and, uh, and practice is how do we easily and clearly portray to people and explain the mystery of God that Jesus Christ was God 100%, and he didn't lose any of his deity, and he became incarnate in human flesh and was 100% human. How do we portray that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, could, you could, as you're sharing the gospel, and you tell people Christian math is 1 plus 1 equals 1, or uh, <laughs> uh, they might just throw us off instantly and at least not take our math classes. Um, so I usually explain to people like, you know, you have a nature in yourself that to that, this is to their, to their perception that is good. They do from their perception, good things. They uh, feed the homeless. They say nice things. They're good people, right? Yet they do bad things. Every person admits that they, they do, they've done something bad. They've, uh, either smoked a cigarette or uh, accidentally, like they sped, they broke the law, really, really bad things, you know. So there's something even within the human condition from their perspective, right? Now I know that they're apart from Christ, wholly bad, and none of none of their deeds are righteous. Uh, even their righteous deeds are completely unrighteous. But to their perception is that. Uh, they have two natures conflicting inside themselves at the same time. That they uh, perceive that they're good people, yet they do bad things. How can that be, right? So that's just one way. And you, know, and you can think of different analogies or word pictures to help people understand that. It's the two wolves. The two wolves. That's one way. To put it, uh, but either way, it's a mystery of God. Just like being able to clearly uh, tell people the Trinity, you have to be able to do that. 
uh, as we're sharing the gospel and discipling people, right? So there's no... Uh, uh, there's no like real hold up. It's very clearly portrayed that Jesus was a real man. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an angel. He dwelt in human flesh. John 1 14 says it clear enough for me that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and then he had our nature and um, let's, let's get someone to read Hebrews four fifteen and 16, just because of the catechism question says that, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, let's go with Sydney. Can you grab that one? You're kind of, well, jut off and take a little divergent to you. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in time of need. Yeah, so the good news is that, like, Jesus Christ came, he was God, but he was also man. So if he came and he wasn't man, he wasn't exactly as we are, would that be, as we get down, a, a good substitution? Was it a substitution? You actually couldn't say it was a substitution, right? Because it wasn't the same, right? If God came in the flesh and he wasn't human and didn't have human nature and wasn't tempted to sin and overcame it, how is that like a good exchange? It's not, right? This is where uh, every other religion gets it wrong and why every other religion is based on man's works. Uh, all the pseudo-Christian cults, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses especially, are based on man's works. Uh, because either he wasn't God or, or he, wasn't fully, he wasn't fully God or he wasn't fully human, so you have to add something in there. Right, and the and what Hebrews brings out is that you know he was uh, in made in human nature, right, where he came in human nature, and he sympathizes with our weaknesses and was tempted in every respect, every single way. The good thing is that, like, uh, you know, as we're sharing the gospel and as you submit the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself, is that like every temptation that you've ever had. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to say Jesus was tempted in every single way, like, because uh, let's be honest, like the internet didn't exist uh, back in in 25 AD, so I don't think he was tempted with uh, wasting time on the internet and laziness in that level uh, or anything else. Um, but that, like, in every respect, like Jesus was. So let's just like consider sloth. Jesus was tempted to be lazy. And to be slothful. Yet he wasn't, and he overcame. He was in a real way tempted, and in a real way never sinned and never submitted to that. Yet the temptation was real in there. And the good news is that in every temptation that we have, uh, Christ is able to sympathize. Right? Uh, how many, so is there a fair number of people that maybe meet with other people uh, on a regular basis? Like, uh, you know, if someone's been through like a specific traumatic experience, they usually like uh, to be counseled by someone who has also been through that same kind of 
because they understand the pain and they understand either the shame or or whatever they're empathetic they're yeah much more empathetic and less of a of a sympathetic Is that true? Yeah. I'm looking to DM for this one. You put yourself in their place. Yeah, so it's more sympathetic than empathetic, right? Because they could, like, you know, and uh, that's why personal testimonies are so powerful as we go out and share the gospel is because you could, like, literally tell somebody that, like, yeah, I struggled with the same thing. I had the same shame. I had the same guilt. I I lived the same life. I lived the same way or in a similar way. And as I came and received Christ and received a new life, he changed me so I don't have to submit to that anymore. I'm no longer controlled by the power of sin and Satan, and I'm no longer captive and enslaved to my desires, and he has set me free. <laughs> and I received a new life, and I don't even look like the same guy anymore or the same girl. Uh, i got a question. Yeah. It's not pertaining to what we're talking here. Or can we hold off on it then? John? Okay. Yeah. Uh, does it pertain to anything? If it comes up on something we're pertaining to, feel free to shoot it in there. John the Baptist came to the spirit of Elijah, and they did to whatever they would. Well, if it's not pertaining to this, well, let's ha- hold on to that. Okay? We'll answer that uh, either after or... But don't forget, let's answer it. Okay? Uh, right, so we see the merciful high priest concept that's rooted in Scripture of, you know, uh, you know, uh, sacrifice and... Uh, going before the people, right? That won't necessarily make a lot of sense to people who aren't pre-evangelized, right? So if you tell uh, a Hindu, well, I don't know what Hindus believe. I know they have Hindu priests and stuff, but I don't know what their role is. So if you tell uh, a Muslim, um, well, they've got mosque priest-esque things. Uh, but either way, like, Either, the concept's not going to travel, right? They might know what a priest is, but if you say Jesus is the high priest, right, they're not going to understand that the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement uh, to make sacrifices for himself and then all the people, right? So you have to be able to clearly, like those are something that would come out in further Bible stories or Bible studies, uh, but might not be something to use on like door-to-door evangelism unless they're pre-evangelized, right? Unless they have that concept. But, uh, but that he was man, he, he is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, and he was tempted in every way. He did have a real human nature, 100%, and he overcame all sin, right? Does that make sense so far? All right. Let's move on to point C, uh, about who is Jesus? Why is he the only solution? Uh, you know, from there, that he's God, he's a man, we go into that he's sinless, uh, called the spotless lamb, the lamb of God metaphor is used 12 times in Revelation. Uh, you know, we just read in Hebrews uh, 4.15 that he was tempted in every way or in every respect, yet without sin. Uh, let's go to Byron. Can you get John 1.29? John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, so just going back to the other two points, who can take away sin? God. God, God right? Only uh, God can take away sin, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, if you're ever talking to the pseudo-Christian cults, you can use that as well. So, uh, the spotless lamb, right, which is obviously referring to, to what? The sacrifices. Not just the sacrifices, but go before the sacrifices were instituted. 
in Exodus thir- 12 or 13? Passover. Passover, the Passover lamb, right? That the, uh, uh, that the God was going to kill uh, the firstborn males in Egypt. So uh, the blood of a spotless one-year-old lamb was going to be put on the doors uh, to cover, right? And all this is pointing towards Christ, right? So why is it important that he's sinless? Why does that make sense as we go out and evangelize? Because there are people that like, uh, there's like really crazy people out there that have are no sense in reality and know the Bible and they might know of Jesus, but they would say that like he was just like a good guy. But uh, who was who went out evangelizing? And they said, what you were telling me about uh, that they believe that Jesus like when the using extra biblical sources that Jesus dared some kid to jump off a roof and he died and then Jesus raised him back to life and then he knew his power. Like that's like totally that's like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Also, the implications of whatever that person believed is that like Jesus was sinful. He dared somebody to jump off a roof. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like something boys would do. Uh, sounds like something uh, guys would do. So, right? So, why is it important as we go out and evangelize for the good news is that he's sinless? He's not sinless. He needs to atone for his own sins, which he can't do because he would have to be sinless. Right. Right, Sin, like to be sinless is the only way uh, to be perfect and, and spotless and to atone for sins. Not just that like God had already said him before and making the pattern of like uh, the sacrifices had to be perfect. And so like it's all leading towards his sacrifice, right? Uh, his death on the cross, what we're going to call his substitutionary uh, penal atonement, right? Penal is the punishment. Right? If he wasn't sinless, then he couldn't take away our sins. Right? So if he didn't overcome in every way, in every respect, every temptation, and become victorious, neither could we, and neither should we expect that we should either. Right? We would just blow sin to the wayside. Well, nobody's perfect. Not even Jesus was perfect. (laughs) Uh, Not even Jesus sinned. Uh, So... You know, it's huge as we're, you know, going out. Like, the good news is that, like, as we look at the depths of the sin uh, in our sin nature and of the world and, and Satan is, like, we need a solution that is complete, perfect, never-ending, and has never failed. And that is Jesus Christ. And so, you know, just like on a side note, as uh, in a culture of people who are pre-evangelized, most of the time they've just been told the good news. So uh, they don't always hear or understand the bad news as much. So I like to bring out things as I get into Bible studies with people of like, Jesus was absolutely sinless. And they go, yes, amen. Love you, brother. Yeah, let's talk about, he was love, right? Yes, God is love. Jesus is the incarnation of love and truth. Yes. Jesus whipped people. <laughs> what? Yeah, well, like, and that, you know, I usually try to draw out of people at that point of like, how could he be, how is this sinless, perfect, loving, and just? Right? And, and seeing where the person goes with that. Because you've got a reason that, like, even at points that Jesus told the disciples that he wasn't going up into the festivals in Jerusalem and then went up. And he just got it. He knew he was going. 
So that's not something I would bring out like right away, you know, but showing the aspects of like, you know, not just going with the sugar-coated gospel, like, because uh, most people are pre-evangelized or baby Christians and haven't like been rooted and grounded in scripture as truth and reality and it's their whole way of life, are generally going to side with uh, a less bold gospel of Jesus's manhood of whipping people. I, I don't mean manhood as mankind, I mean as like what a man is opposed to a woman, of wh whipping people. He said, get out of my house. <laughs> right? Uh, he said, your dad's the devil. <laughs> You're doing your works for your father and you seek to kill me. Right? He was very bold. He was up front. He confronted, uh, which was very loving. He loved the Pharisees. Uh, he whipped people, and he was sinless in his whippings. He was sinless in calling people to repentance and telling them that they're pretty much uh, doing Satan's works, <laughs> right? So yeah, we can be the same as we evangelize and we take that as a pattern, but also like as you start getting into conversations with people, uh, as trying to help them to understand the fullness of Christ and his sinlessness, not just in a sugar-coated way, but like, yeah, uh, you know, and bring out like as because when people start reading the gospels for the first time, they'll have to wrestle with that, anyways. So, and anything less than a sinless sacrifice, as we get to the substitu substitution and the sacrifice, would not be effective, right? He would not, um, if Jesus didn't overcome lust, neither should we. your debt to God is infinite. And like, if you were to have one sin, then he would be just as indebted as you are, even if it was just one. And how oh, yeah. could he pay your debt if he is also in debt? Yeah, right. So as we understand like the depths of, uh, well, we'll say the bad news, the depths and the weight of sin, right? Uh, like nobody, like since the creation of Adam, had been able to overcome the power of sin. <laughs> and become deceived and unrighteous and being continually sent away and separated from God and getting like the whole sin nature has been compounded and compounded and compounded, you know, all the way to Noah to where God's like, why did I even do this? <laughs> what am I? I knew it was, he, obviously he foreknown and predestined everything was going to happen, but it says that you know, he had wished, even wished that he had not made mankind because sin was compounding and compounding and getting worse and like, uh, you know, go back and listen to, uh, or go and listen to on table fellowships. Uh, they should all be recorded. Tom Kelby talking about like, you know, when Genesis four, when, uh, Cain, the effects of like, you know, as we read scripture, uh, more in depth from scripture's point of view, like as soon as sin enters the world and it affects like, uh, Cain, right. And it goes all the way down to Lamech and Lamech's like singing a praise song about he killed some little boy. Like he's singing how glorious he is and how great he is because he killed an innocent child. That's how bad sin is. Uh, welcome to the world, right? So as we see, that's a great point. Like as we see like the depths and the power of sin, that like how much we are entrapped and enslaved to it and that Christ was sinless, like that's one of the reasons why he's worthy to be praised and why, why we should worship him, right? Because like all this this evilness and this vileness that we contain and we have 
Christ overcame every bit of that, every single bit. All right, so then we're going to look at, all right, on to point D. Uh, we're pretty good. We're about 45 minutes in, and we got through one quarter of a page. <laughs> all right, so substitute. Um, we're not going to look at the exchanges made at the cross appendix right now, which is that secondary page. We're going to look at the seven exchanges made at the cross. Uh, we won't look at that. We'll look at that later. Because uh, I kind of want to get through this, and then we'll kind of look at that later. Uh, but just the simple fact that, uh, not that, that, he, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, was a real human, that he was sinless, and that he came on our behalf. Right. So if he wasn't a substitute, if he wasn't a mediator, a go-between, then we're still faced with a sin dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Then we're still faced with, well, what do I do now? <laughs> Uh, we're, we're still uh, dead, right? So where are we at? Uh, Byron, you read last, right? Uh, Sam Wante. Let's get 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, and then... Let's see. We'll do one other one. Uh, let's do the Isaiah 53. Uh, who's back there? Melody? Uh, can you grab those Isaiah passages and then... We'll kind of just leave it at that for time's sake. Shall I go ahead? Yep, whenever you got it. In Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right, so he, that's the that wraps up the two concepts, sinless and substitute, that he was absolutely sinless and he became sin on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, and verse 10. Truly he has borne our grief. Right, so that's a pretty famous passage, right? Uh, we sinned, he gets punished. We transgress, he gets stricken. We make the mistake, he fixes it, or he heals us. Uh, we're sick, he heals us, right? So, um... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's like super good news. Yeah, I, I always like to, just like to go back to the finance analogies. It's just like... The, oh, the finance analogies? Yeah. Yeah, it's like... Um, you got two potholes. <laughs> the government... Yeah. This is the other one. So what's the... What's the finance analogies? sin in God's eyesight. Like, we owed such a huge debt. Like, you know, you can't even count how much mm -hmm. we were in bad relation to God. But not only does Jesus bring us to zero, but we are now the righteousness. Now we are in good standing, so his our count is credited such like it was at once in debt. Right. Yeah. yeah, it goes to not just to zero, but it goes back to the other end of innumerable riches uh, on the, in the black. No longer in the red. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if, there, if he wasn't a, a substitute, right, that would be terrible news because if we didn't have someone that uh, completely did everything for us because like, the bad news is that we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And 
Therefore, we need somebody to do not just a little bit, but we need someone to do it all. We need someone to be our righteousness, be sinless. We need God to pull us out of the muck, out of the mire, out of like we're drowning and God's trying to save us and we're like punching him like, no, stop it. It's like a combination of mercy and grace because like if we were just forgiven and brought to zero, then the next breath we would be just as indebted with our sinful thoughts and actions. But with grace, the combination of mercy bringing us to zero and grace taking us infinitely in the other way is the only way that we could ever be in right relation to God. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so we'll kind of leave that one at that because we're going to look at the uh, seven exchanges made at the cross uh, a little bit farther down. Because um, we're not going to just talk about... So we're going to go through this section, on finish this last one on who, who is Jesus, and then uh, we'll go into like what it means to receive Christ. Um, so what's a substitute versus a mediator? So if he's substituting, he's in our place, what's the difference between a mediator, intercessor, advocate, or federal head? Someone who speaks on your behalf. Who speaks on your behalf. What was it? A go-in between. A go-in-between, right? Uh, middleman. Middleman? Yes. Yeah. Advocate, right? Someone who is uh, constantly like pleading your case. Right, a counselor, uh, a lawyer was kind of a going between you and the judge or you and the jury, a bridge, right? So, not just a substitute, he didn't just do it and like substitute in the atonement for us, right? He's also continually interceding, going in between, uh, being that bridge and gap, right? So, I, I actually added on there, we didn't have federal head on these outlines, but I added federal head. So, what's a uh, in covenantal language, what's a federal head? The guy that's still <coughs> responsible for the rest of them for upholding the covenant and making sure the covenant's upheld. Yeah, making sure the covenant's upheld. It streams to one person, and through that one person, the rest of the covenant is like, it's like one giant stream of water, and then it streams down to every other person in under that head, right? So when we say Jesus is the covenant head... Uh, you know, with the whole idea of new birth is like we're birthed and adopted by Christ and we have that same stream coming to him, come to, come to us, only think of it in uh, what we'll label Christian math uh, is the exact same stream that's coming to Christ isn't then divided into millions of parts to us individually, but is in the exact same stream in the exact same amount in the exact same way coming to us. And she also use that analogy for like, can you use it for marriage? Uh, yeah, you can use that. Yeah, marriage. The marriage covenant is clearly a reflection of uh, of that. So, uh, where are we? Are we at John Luke? Uh, John Luke, First Timothy two five, and then Deanna. Let's do uh, Romans five. It's not on the page. Just Romans five verses eighteen and nineteen. I had that one in for the federal head idea. Oh, you're right. First Timothy two five. This is NASB. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah, there's only one. It's the God. It's the man, Christ Jesus. Right. 
to mediate. He's mediating the covenant. He's mediating grace. He's mediating all the blessings. He's mediating faith. Everything. Right? All right, Dean, Romans 5, uh, why is it just 18 and 19? Right, so that's the federal head idea that we're talking about, right? Adam is the federal head of all humankind, right? By him, by one man's transgress or disobedience, all have become disobedient and transgressed the law, and the power of sin dwells in us all, and it is unstoppable and cannot be overcome, except by the one man, Jesus Christ, who by one act can justify all of us, right? By his acts, by his ministry, by what he did, by his substitutionary atoning death, uh, penal substitutionary atoning death, sorry, uh, all those words are important, uh, thereby he becomes our federal head to appease God's wrath, atone for our sin, and be a substitute on our behalf, right? That's where the idea... So, uh, does anybody... Uh, I won't give away the answer, I guess. I know some people would probably know it, I hope. Uh, why do I keep saying penal substitutionary atonement? That's one of three main views of atonement. Because it's, uh, it's a legal term. Because we're legally guilty. It's legally guilty, mm-hmm. right? So... So it's punishment. God absorbed wrath, or I'm sorry, Christ absorbed wrath and punishment. Uh, who in the Christian ethos doesn't believe that? Say that again. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics, right? What do they believe? They believe Christus Victor, uh, which is that Jesus Christ in his death wasn't a, God wouldn't pour his wrath out on his son because that would be, in their view, unloving and not just. So Christ willingly did this as an act to overcome the power of death and Satan. They wouldn't say that God, they wouldn't say that Christ absorbed wrath. So, so then how, what happens to the wrath? It's, a, it's, not a, it's not appeased, it's not there. That's the answer. What? It's just just not there, they say. The wrath, that's not, don't think about that, is what what some might say, right? So, uh, you know, I wouldn't, like, so we talk to Catholics on campus all the time. Not the group Catholics on campus. Uh, We do. uh, Catholic Campus Ministries. Uh, It's a great ministry. I think there's genuine people uh, who, who love Christ. But this is, yeah, it's a very good group. Um, But just so you know, uh, like, that doesn't align with Scripture. Very clearly, the wrath was poured out on Christ. It says that. (laughs) Right? Uh, So, uh, believe you get saved the same way? They would still say, uh, well... So it uh, depends on how much they conform to like Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic doctrine. Mm-hmm. 
So you'd have to clarify with me, Deanna, if you know better on Eastern Orthodox, but both would lean towards a works-based religion. No on Eastern Orthodox? Right. That yeah, they would have. Uh, that sounds like the same kind of beliefs so on God's wrath in Islam. He just forgets about it. He's kind of Italian. Just forget about it. Yeah. So, like, especially in uh, in Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic belief system is like especially like what they believe about scripture and and God it does what they believe and what they practice goes it sounds good when you say the the dogmatic beliefs but how it works out uh is different yeah so if you ever run into a, a catholic and want to talk to them further and you know uh it's not a big thing that catholics read their bibles uh, read their bibles uh and you help them to understand uh, they might be a truly converted Christian, or they might not be. Is That's there, something. Is there something besides Roman Catholicism? Is there like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Catholic Church universal. Uh, not in. I don't know what that is. There's different Orthodox. Then there's like, uh, you know, the, there's not just the Eastern Orthodox, but then there's like, there's the Coptic Christians, which would be like. Closer to Eastern Orthodox and stuff like that, okay. uh, Russian Orthodox and whatever. And I don't know all the little tiny offsprings of that, uh, but Roman Catholic is clearly pointing back to the Pope, you know, and, and the Vatican. Um, so that God uh, in Christ was the punit- absorbed the punishment and wrath of God, the penal, the right, and then substitutionary that He was in our place and atone, atone for sin, death, and everything, right? So penal substitutionary atonement is huge uh, when it comes to him being our federal head, advocate, intercessor, and mediator, because what is he mediating? Is he continually uh, mediating and interceding on our behalf for our ongoing sins and the wrath of God? Or is he not? Right? Or is God just continually just, as we sin, forgetting about it? Right? So you kind of can see in a conceptual picture of when you look at him uh, as a penal substitutionary atonement standpoint, just in that, in that language, obviously, don't say this as you're evangelizing. Uh, nobody will understand. Um, but, you know, that God absorbed the wrath. He absorbed the punishment. He uh, placated, which means he took away our shame and our guilt and all of the punishment associated 
with the wrath of God, right? And he was that in place for us. And he continually intercedes. And he's continually uh, going on behalf of the Father. And his atonement is continually being effective in that manner. Does that make sense? Did I explain that clearly? Because if I can't expect, if I can't explain it clearly to you guys, I can't expect you guys to go out and explain it clearly <laughs> to people, right? Uh, all right. So that actually, uh, we'll wrap that up on like, on Jesus Christ is the only solution, right? So what are some, uh, as we go and evangelize, what's everybody else's uh, solution boiled down to? Works-based righteousness, right? Works-based to get yourself back to God. And we actually haven't talked anything uh, about what we can do <laughs> so far. We've, all, we've only talked about, uh, combining last week, like how bad and how much of sinners we are and how trapped we are by the power of sin, death, and, and Satan, and, and trapped by it and separated from God. And uh, Jesus Christ is the only solution. Uh, and every one of these points is really important. Uh, so now we get to like, what do we do? <laughs> like, uh, if that's the case, like who can be saved? <laughs> so uh, let's go into receiving Jesus. Why do I need to receive Jesus? Uh, do I need to exchange my life? Uh, so let's look at that point A. And remembering the bad news. So the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so again, like what do we, what's the, if we're just preaching bad news and we're not clearly conveying how bad the bad news is, who's going to be poor in spirit? There's nobody. Uh, like how could you be poor in spirit? You would just be like, oh great, God, God died for me. That's awesome. So what? <laughs> Uh, that's really nice of him. Glad he did it. I mean, keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, where are we at? Deanna or Joshua? Joshua, right? Yeah. Uh, can you grab 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26 through 31? This is the uh, Holman Bible, um, Christian Bible. Brothers, consider your calling. How many are wise from a human perspective? How many powerful? How many of noble birth? Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence. Do I keep reading? Or? No, that's good. So what's the implications of that? That God takes those who are brokenhearted, who are poor in spirit, that are nothing in this world, and he raises them up to something. <laughs> right? God takes the, the meek, the unlearned, the uneducated, the poor in spirit, people who don't matter to anybody, and know it, and raises those people up, right? That's pretty. That's pretty good news. Uh, but it's always in um, in relation to the uh, to the bad news, right? So we have to 
you know, to even like receive Christ, you need to know like how bad it is. So if people don't have a good concept, I get super fishy of people I'm meeting with and they're telling me like, you know, like I, I, I go through like, you know, questions of like asking people like, what do you think about sin and Satan and the world? And if it's like not a very, you know, thought out answer, uh, maybe not thought out, but like not very deep or biblically a- accurate. Like I start questioning, like, you know, how how much can this person really be converted to Christ? Like, which Jesus are they receiving? Right? Because I mean, Paul's pretty strong in his letters to the Galatians that if you even accept circumcision with Christ, he is of no value to you. That's like if you even accept that. Uh, you have to pray three times a day, then Christ is of no value to you. Or something like that, right? Insert whatever uh, works-based righteousness that I have to work on my own accord to be acceptable to God by any way, right? Christ is of no value to you. If you have to do something, now you do have a response. This is what we're getting into. Uh, And again, because... uh, this is where uh, people hopefully overcome, uh, if you're in a, a mindset called Calvinism, um, based on the graces of God, and you get into the cage stage, uh, right? And you get very adamant about these things, but you need to learn how to come out of the cage stage. Hopefully you don't perpetually live there, of always like fighting with people and saying, this is how it is, and you know, uh, you know how to like gracefully bring people to like knowing how bad it is and how much you need Christ's acceptance and clearly doing it, right? So I believe this is uh, one of those mysteries of God that is a paradox that God did all, the, all these things. Uh, God, his grace is complete and God gives you the faith and he uh, born, uh, gives you his spirit and, and births you again uh, into his kingdom and gives you eyes to see his kingdom and rightfully understand the scriptures. Yet you have to receive Christ. You have to do things. Yet Christ does all the things. <laughs> okay, in Matthew 5, 30, going back to that, what does poor in spirit mean? Yeah, so anybody want to explain that one? Oh, this is... It means, uh, like, the tax collector who, you know, when they were <coughs> talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector were praying and the, tax, uh, the Pharisee's like, God... Thank you that I'm not as terrible as these other sinners, whereas the tax collector was like, Lord, thank you for saving me and forgiving me my sins and stuff. You know, like, poor in spirit is just realizing that you're a sinner that needs saving. It's what Stephen was saying, like having like a deep, uh, well, having a deeper view of your sin, like Nietzsche and also said. Yeah, good question. Uh, so poor in spirit, you know, that was a good example with the only... Um, parable that I know that Jesus uses like what probably was really going on or he probably saw is when the Pharisee says thank God I'm not like these other people uh, and the tax collector like beats his chest wouldn't even look up and says like God forgive me I'm a sinner uh, you know you're like poor in spirit means you're like you're broken hearted contrite you need like you don't have a lofty boastful proud spirit but you're humbled enough to the point that you're crying out to God uh, and your spirit you're motivation and attitudes within you is not self-righteously based, but crying out to God for help. 
Uh, like I think of it, let's see if I can pull it up. Uh, I think it's Psalm 69. Okay. That starts. Uh, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mightier are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I steal? Must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly, right? All these things. Uh, also, like he's like crying out to God. Like <laughs> like there's one, uh, I can't remember what psalm it is, but I think it's a psalm of David. when he's like, uh, help God, my foot's about to slip. <laughs> like help me. You know, here's another one. Psalm 51 is a prime example. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly in my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Right? So those people are poor in spirit. Yeah. So being able to, like, when your sin is ever before you, like, you can't have, like, a boastful, proud spirit when you're rightly related and knowing your sin. If it's ever before you, like, I can't ever come to you, Lord. I can't ever uh, enter your kingdom. You know, because it says the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. Like I don't rightly fit into your kingdom. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. I like don't deserve to be in your kingdom. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Humble is a good way to put it. Yeah, I was thinking humble too. All right. Uh, uh, so no, number two, the bad news necessitates or requires reconciliation. Uh, it's not as the world speaks. Time does not heal all wounds. That yeah. is not true. Uh, I could be angry and bitter about something for the rest of my life. <laughs> Put me to the test. <laughs> That's a competition I'll win. Uh, all right, so you know, one of those things that we saw in uh, sin breaks relationships, separation, right? Uh, specifically speaking of sin breaks your relationship between God, Isaiah 59.2, uh, you know, one... Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, you know, God's hand isn't so shortened that he cannot save, but your sins have made a separation between you and God so that he will not or does not hear your prayers. Um, and Amos 3, 3. Uh, someone want to grab that? Where are we at, Bob? Yeah. That's a, we're, this one's like kind of interwoven throughout all of these outlines. Amos 3, 3, yes, you two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. Yeah, and what did God already agree on according to your sin? <laughs> Death, separation, your vile, your unrighteousness. Your sins are like filthy rags, right? Unless you have come to that agreement, <laughs> there's no walking with God. <laughs> uh, right, so, uh, you know, this is... Um, you know, the bad news is we're pretty much saying you need to be reconciled to God, right? You know, now we will get into reconciles other relationships because, you know, when we talked about the seven aspects of fallen man, uh, hiding from God, independent, rebellious, and separated from God are like all three, like all three need reconciliation to God, right? You need to stop hiding from him. Uh, you need to not be independent and rebellious and you need to be reconciled. You need to be like actually be with him, right? Um... And then reconcile, reconciliation restores relationships. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8, uh, 
five eighteen through twenty. Uh, we'll kind of cut the sound a little bit worse. Says, you know, therefore he urges you, like we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, right? That's what we're doing in evangelism. We're not giving. We don't have the message of love and peace. We do have a message of peace. Uh, peace because you are an enemy with you're an enemy of God. Uh, but it's you know largely reconciliation. How do you restore? Not how do you, but uh, for lack of better terms, how do you be restored to God? Right. Um, and reconciliation requires a response. Uh, let's pull up uh, Teresa. Let's do Galatians. Oh, I'm sorry, Colossians one twenty and twenty two. And we'll try to move along a little bit quicker. Yeah, so he's reconciling all things. Not just you. He's actually, you know, if we look at Romans 8, that the whole earth groans in expectation for the revealing of the sons of men. Like the whole universe is being restored to the glory of God uh, and to his kingdom being, you know, dwelling uh, in his people on earth. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, is it Deuteronomy 28? That talks about the blessings and curses of obedience and curses of disobedience. Uh what are some like some of those things have to do with like your crops and your land and the rain, right? Because who's in control of that? God. <laughs> He'll actually bless. Now those things were units and used in the economy. Also, and that's also something that God blesses, that He clearly blesses uh, in Deuteronomy twenty-eight uh, and curses for disobedience is not just those things that are in the economy, but He says. When you obey God, you will become the lenders and you won't become the borrowers. And when you disobey, you will become the borrowers and you won't be the lenders. So, uh, but the whole, you know, Romans 8 thing of the whole creation, the whole universe groans with eager expectation at the revealing of the sons of God. Like we will actually have uh, like a more harmonious world with, uh, you know, what I would believe is like, uh, better crops, better produce, uh, less um, natural disasters. The more the earth is being transformed into and conformed to Christ's kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but anyways, uh, you know, responses are required for reconciliation. If Josiah, if I spit in Josiah's face and... Uh, you know, Josiah's like, Stephen, you know, I didn't really appreciate when you spit in my eye. Uh, you know, I would have expected that from, you know, somebody else, but not you. Uh, that requires a response from me. And he says, like, I'm going to let this one go, but if you spit in my eye, I'm going to punch you. Uh, that requires a response from me. I have to, in order to be reconciled to him, uh, I have to say the same thing. I have to admit my guilt. I didn't say, I didn't spit in your eye. What are you talking about? That was like, dude, it's raining. How do you know it was me? It's like, well, I saw you. What's that? I don't know what you're talking about. So you think just cover the leaves and then you 
Is that a is that a meme or something? There we go. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, in Revelation three twenty, Christ says, "If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, like these are talking to churchgoers, like Christ is knocking on the door of a church. He's not like knocking on the door of like, you know, some far off and distant country. He's knocking on the church doors. If you hear my voice, like this is part of his like." you know, intercession and mediation. He's continually knocking on the door and you do have to continually respond, mm -hmm. right? But there is the initial response, right? You do have to receive Christ. You have to, um, uh, as the metaphor speaks, open the door when he knocks, even though I think it sounds uh, a little cheesy to use that, but. Yeah, Revelation 3.20 says, I say that the door Yeah. So, right, like anytime there's reconciliation, anytime there's a broken relationship in any form, there it requires a response. There's somebody has to forgive, right? Reconciliation, like the def by definition, there was something that separated the, re the relationship or severed it. And in order for them to be brought back together, there has to be, to be restored, there has to be somebody forgiving, somebody... Uh, to have a proper admitting that they did wrong and are working together to restore that relationship, right? So that's no different uh, between God and us, right? The only thing is that he does all the work for us and we get to agree with whatever he says <laughs> and do whatever he says. Uh, and what it looks like to be restored to God isn't necessarily what it looks like when I'm restored to Daniel. Uh, you know, uh, just because I... Stay. I hang out at his house too late, and he's got to go to work early, and he's trying to sleep. Uh, doesn't mean I have to become obedient in all things to Daniel, but I do have to become obedient to his rules in his household <laughs> to be restored to that relationship. <laughs> right? Amen. Amen. He already said we shouldn't stay too late because he's got to wake up at like five in the morning. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, so if he's in control, if he's the one facilitating the reconciliation, uh, you know, if we're the ones with the bad news and there's no hope and nothing can save us apart from God himself coming in the flesh and coming on our behalf and being sinless and spotless and being an intercessory and a, and a federal head and, and doing all these things, that does necessitate, although he's done all those things, that we have to respond to that, Right? So you see the difference between every other worldview and religion would say, we have to bridge the gap. We have to pray five, we have to do the five pillars of the Islam faith. We have to do this. What we're doing is all we're doing is catching. We're receiving, right? So receiving Jesus, do I need to exchange my life? Much more than forgiveness. Uh, you know, one way you can gauge uh, people like on their... Um, you know, even on a, on a human level, like, uh, if let's just use that wild example of like me spitting in Josiah's face and we're like, let's, yeah, let's reconcile this relationship and let's, let's go through a time of like, let's actually just pray to God. And if I were to go, Lord, uh, forgive me of my sins. Uh, and, uh, thank you Lord for Josiah forgiving my sins. Like if it was all about like me getting forgiveness, there were, that should be like a little bit of a red flag that they don't quite get that they need to not spit. I need to not spit in Josiah's face anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
right? Uh, this is kind of like a silly analogy and example, but but I can't think of anything better uh, in the moment. But you know, but if I were to play like Lord, like really help me to control my anger and see uh, the worth of Josiah, so I don't spit in his face and uh, help you know uh, me to take the necessary steps and keep accountable in order to not spit in his face anymore and you know whatever. Like actually, that there's going to be a change in lifestyle. That there's going to be a change in uh, the relationship that could be reconciled. If it was all about me and me receiving forgiveness and me not being punished and me not being held accountable anymore, that would be a red flag. But that's where the large gospel in the West, largely the gospel in the West, has gone. Right? That it's just uh, it's not rightfully understood with the bad news. Right? When Paul says in wherever Paul says it, as I delivered a view of first importance that Christ died for your sins and whatever else he says, but that's one of the first things he says. Uh, you know, we take that as like, oh, we get a, we get out. We're clean now, right? Not, that's not rightfully understood with the bad news. That really doesn't make any sense, and it leads to licentiousness, right? If I didn't think that I shouldn't spit in Josiah's face anymore, but that he'll keep forgiving me, and that he needs to forgive me 70 times 7, <laughs> right? Or... Or whatever, uh, you know. You need to forgive me, Josiah. Uh, here's another one coming. Right. It's like the idea of repentance. Yeah. Like you can, you can just like acknowledge the sin, but if you're not also like turning away from it and doing 180, then that's like it doesn't do anything. It's just one side of it. It's not like the incomplete obedience is disobedience. So. Right. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. And slow obedience. Oh, as we teach now. What's that? So, someone I knew who they they were talking about how they were like telling their kid uh, they were running towards the street, you know, and like they're like stop, stop, and they stopped like right in the middle of the street, you know. It's like oh my gosh, like delayed obedience is still disobedience because right. now they're in the middle of the street. And you're like what? I stopped. Yeah, but yeah. All right, so now we're looking at the exchanges made at the cross. So let's go to your secondary, which this is Appendix 2 of Operation Reconciliation. Uh, we'll try to run through this really quick because we already talked a lot about these. Uh, and we talked a lot about these in the bad news. So let's just read through them. Uh, we talked about what a substitution is, so you know about a third of the way down the page, the seven substitutions or exchanges made by Christ's crucifixion. Number one is sin, and that's opposed to sins, right? So the power of sin, right? He made him to who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, right? So Christ didn't commit any sins, but also the power of sin didn't overpower him, right? He overcame the power. Of sin, right? But he also didn't, number two, commit any sins. Right? First Peter. What's that? We're on the appendix to the other page that's not that's not stapled. Uh, it has the same heading, but then it says appendix to seven substitutions, exchanges made in the atonement of Christ. Right? So the power of sin and then also sins. Right? So he took so just to you know do that in the substitution format that so he took on the power of sin so that we could be freed from that, right? 
He committed no sins so that we could become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange there. He took our sin, power of sin, and he took our sins so that we would be justified and sanctified. Right? Justification is our declared righteousness and sanctification is our gradual growing in righteousness. Right? So number three, he took on alienation from God. Uh, Psalm 22.1, which Christ quotes, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that, uh, you know, that the Father wouldn't look upon Christ, you know, with all, and point out his wrath, that the Father uh, separated himself, in that sense, from Christ, and that he gave us, so he took on the separation from the Father so that we could be reconciled. Uh, and have the same, in the same quality, the relationship that Christ has with the Father. All right, number four, alienation from mankind, uh, including ourselves. Uh, Psalm 22, again, by him a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by my people. Uh, so by, by, uh, by the people, but his mother, his brothers, uh, the disciples abandoned him. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, sold him. And not just that, his people, the Israelites, uh, you know, going on to verse 7, all who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, saying he delights in him, right? The priest and the Israelites and the Jews mocked him on the cross, right? He took on that separation from other men, other human beings from mankind in order that we can be restored to right relationships with another. Uh, flipping over to the back. Right? So think about how you can portray this in an evangelistic uh, meeting. Right? There's always a separation between... Everyone has severed relationships because everybody, everybody commits sins. Right? Only through the power of Christ uh, and submitting yourselves to him that those relationships can never be healed and restored. All right, oh, okay, over on the back. Sickness. First uh, Peter 2.24, he himself, quoting Isaiah 53, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. All right, we'll just stop there for this one. Uh, you know, so like physical sickness, not just like our spiritual sickness, he did do that, but also our physical sickness. Right now, I'm not you now with number five and six sickness and, and pro poverty. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching if you come to Christ, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You'll get a new car. God will love you and bless you uh, with that Mercedes you always wanted. That He'll heal every cancer and every cold. And if you're sinning, that's your fault. That's not what I'm saying. But uh, as you're reconciled to God, uh, He does heal. Like, he has the power to heal. It's nobody else, right? Now he might give you cancer as well because he knows what's best for you. And sometimes that's cancer. Every good gift is from God. Everything is from God, right? Uh, according to his plan and his good purpose. And all things are good gifts from him. So that could mean cancer. Uh, but, so that doesn't mean that he heals every sickness, but doesn't mean that he does heal sickness, Right? He did bear every sin, every disease that entered the world upon uh, Adam's sin and rebellion. Number six, poverty. Second Corinthians 
8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, uh, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Yes, spiritually rich, uh, but the way it goes also, actually the more you receive Christ, receive his commandments, receive his uh, laws, the more you'll know about economy. And what do we say in uh, about Deuteronomy 28? It says that actually the more you become obedient and receive Christ to become obedient and become sanctified, one of those natural outcomes, I say natural, but one of those outcomes uh, is that as you obey the Lord, uh, you will become more and more the lender and less and less the borrower. Amen. If you don't, that would show uh, disobedience in some area. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich. I'm not going to be rich. I'll probably work till the day till the day I die. Uh, most of us might not be rich. Probably most of us won't be rich. But some of us uh, could gain, you know, some physical standing in this world, right? As Second Corinthians says earlier in chapter one that not many of us who were of anything of noble standing of of wisdom in the world were anything, but we have become something right through Christ. Uh, and as by his grace, he gives us the law. He gives us understanding. He gives us obedience to obey and everything he says, but he does also bless those who obey him. All right. And he takes on that poverty so that we might become, uh, become rich. All right, number seven. Uh, last exchange we're going to talk about is death. Um, Hebrews 2 14, 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And First Corinthians fifteen twenty six, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Right. So Christ took on death so that we would have life, right, and that we would not just have life but have life more abundantly. More abundantly. Uh, so, um, you know, when we're talking about like substitutions those that's what we're looking at in exchanges he doesn't just give us uh he doesn't just like sit in our place but he completely flips it upside down and he receives death so that we would have life he receives uh punishment so that we'd be set free all of these are like 180 in the same quality in the same respect flipped back to us uh just like the, the financial analogy if we owed a million dollars and we're in debt uh, some of you guys could pay that off in your lifetime. I probably couldn't. Uh, but he doesn't just like bring us to zero, but brings us to a million in the black, right? All right. So um, you know, so that's much more than forgiveness. You know, receive him by exchanging lives. So uh, you know, what we preach and how we disciple people is going to matter. Uh, what they're receiving, right? So that's why we started with the bad news and then we're going to the good news and uh, not just if the bad news isn't bad enough, then the good news won't be good enough. But, you know, the way we talk about the good news is it's not just like, oh, it's bad, but God forgets it all and he, he forgives us. It's that he actually wants to give you a completely new life in Christ. That like if someone saw you in five years, they wouldn't even know who you were and besides the way you physically look. And sometimes... 
sometimes the way you physically look won't even look the same. You get a haircut. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, Jesus saves and Jesus shaves. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I actually ran into a guy at the bank because uh, I bank in the ghetto. Um, that was an inmate in the jail that I worked, and I'm surprised that he recognized me because uh, I've grown a beard and I've tried to physically look much different than I did. Uh, really small, small conversation. But there's some people... Uh, who, as I was being converted, I had like a man bun and a ponytail, and I literally didn't like trim or shave my beard for a year, and it looked grotesque. Uh, and there's probably some people that wouldn't even recognize me now, uh, just because I got a haircut <laughs> and I trimmed my beard or something. Um, so, did you say that your presence used to be scary? Like, just. I mean, just like they say, like when you have Christ the way you walk, your facial expressions, just simple things like that. Yeah, your countenance. Like even, yeah. you know, uh, there's spirits behind that, but also you just the countenance, how you hold yourself if you're like, uh, you so know. So maybe it's not the physical appearance, but it's just the way you present yourself and just the way you act, and that can just be a whole new you. And when they say, like, I don't even recognize you, they mean it like that too. Oh, yeah, Because totally. I didn't know the old you, but maybe they mean it like is that really you in there? Like, is this the right. same Stephen? And that's the way it should be because you yeah. should have like more and more you're becoming, your sanctification should look more and more like Christ's life. Mm -hmm. Right? No longer like like Stephen's or yours. Right? Mm -hmm. So, it's much more than forgiveness. You have to like you receive him by exchanging lives. You don't receive Christ and not get a new life. That doesn't happen. That's not, you can't receive Christ and not get a new life. If you receive, if you think you receive Christ, and your life doesn't look different. I don't mean like overnight instantaneous. I mean like if you're continually living in the same ways and entrapped by the same sins and never get freedom, uh, you have to ask yourself, did you receive Christ? If someone grew up in the church and you're meeting with them or something and their life doesn't look different and they're, uh, you know, whatever, uh, anger encompasses them and overpowers them and lust overpowers them and, and sloth overpowers them all the time and they're not, there's no life exchange and they haven't sought that, then like, what's the proof that they receive Christ, right? So uh, we're getting to the bottom of the first page. We're doing pretty good. <laughs> uh, so we're looking at today's, you know, uh, today's sinner's prayer, uh, Matthew 7 says that you'll know them by their fruit, right? A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit because you know the trees by their fruit. He says a bramble bush doesn't produce, uh, does he say grapes? I forget. Or figs. And a fig tree doesn't produce thorns. Like I know an apple tree when I see an apple tree. It's got apples on it, <laughs> right? I know a strawberry bush when I see it. It's got strawberries, <laughs> Right? So, uh, today's sinner prayer sounds more like Jesus coming into my life, I have sinned, be my savior. Um, but because there's no bad news, uh, like, what do they mean by that? Right? There's no, there's no concept of lordship in there. So I'm actually just going to read off this and we're going on to the back. Just read this paragraph. So what they mean is like Jesus, meaning savior, not lord, the one who meets my felt needs. I'm not making Christ the center of my affections and purpose. I am a sinner, by which we mean I have made a few mistakes in judgment, not that I need deliverance from my foundational desires to be my own Lord, 
that is to say, a singer in every respect at war with my creator, come into my life, by which I mean, uh, be available uh, when I need you, not take over moment by moment control, sit in the back seat, but I'm still driving, I'll, co I'll call upon you when I'm in a fix, but I am not abandoning my own cause or course for yours. Uh, please dust some furniture and make me a little more presentable. However, we mean you are my new coping mechanism, but not the central purpose of my entire existence. Dustin, straighten up a little, but don't even think about a complete remodel from the foundation up. Be my savior, but I remain the one who decides how much of your lordship and plan for my life I will choose. So, you guys, uh, hopefully everyone understands, like, why I'm... I was so pissed off that uh, the four spiritual laws in spiritual law number one, God loves you and is offering a wonderful plan for your life. That is totally like you're in control. God loves you no matter what. There's no way to, there's no like lordship here. There's just Jesus wants to save you and gives you a better you. And he's going to dust a little bit of your furniture and he's going to make you better, but he's not going to like crush you. He's not going to grind you to a pulp and make you an entire new being and you're going to get crushed. <laughs> right? Uh, or I should say, you're going to fall on him and you're going to break into pieces. Mm -hmm. Is the way Christ puts it, right? He says, uh, whoever this rock falls on will be crushed, but whoever falls on this rock will be broken into pieces. So finishing the rest of this, however, this is a fundamental rejection of everything Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Right? There's parables Tons, like Jesus, all of his parables about the kingdom are about how much it costs. What does it cost? Everything. Like, you would sell your entire existence, everything you have, to buy a field where the treasure is buried. You would lay it all down. Right? Uh, it is an inescapable spiritual law that whoever is your savior must be your Lord. He is saving us not from our own he is saving us from our own lordship. He is either Lord of us all. I'm sorry. He is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. We want salvation without relinquishing control. This starts our Christian walk with a complete rejection of the core elements of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We start our Christian life still at war with our Savior. Right? That's why I like to put, uh, I don't know if it's on here, somewhere, uh, Romans 5.10. You know, everyone knows to some degree, while I was still yet a sinner, Christ died for me, right? But Because they don't have any concept of what a sinner is, they don't understand what that means, right? Though it's a great verse to use. So that's Romans 5.8. Romans 5.10 says that while we were still enemies of God, Christ reconciled us to him, right? So that's everyone knows what an enemy is, that we're warned against, right? If you say that you're a sinner, people might say, yeah, I know, but they might mean, oh, yeah, I did a couple bad things, I... Accident, I accidentally kicked a cat once. <laughs> or I, I told a couple white lies. Uh, you know, but not that like uh, my complete foundation is based on the control of, of sin and, and I need some I need like someone to, to save me and there's no hope. Uh, but they know what an enemy is. So uh, making the exchange. People need to be converted. Like this is what we're doing when meeting with people in uh, investigative, evangelistic investigative Bible studies is relaying down gospel foundations that this is going to cost you your entire life. It's all or nothing. There is no in-between. There is nobody that's uh, a Christian that's not a disciple. 
There is nobody in the book of Acts or in the New Testament that is expected in the epistles to be completely sold out for Christ in all ways, in every aspect and respect. Those who aren't are rebuked, <laughs> right? Uh, even, you know, in some things that might seem uh, weird or minuscule to us. But, uh, so making the exchange, conversion is repentance and belief, right? All the gospel presentations are talking about repent, start with repent, and believe, right? That's the essence of conversion, or belief and trust. So let's look at these four examples. Um, we're not actually going to, the second page on this, that is staple to, we're not going to talk about much, so we are getting closer. Um, so repentance is turning from your own lordship to his lordship, to Christ's lordship, uh, and leaving to follow. Every one of the disciples had to leave something, leave the entire existence, their family, uh, and everything to follow Christ in his ministry. And everybody in the book of Acts had to leave everything to follow, especially the church in Jerusalem, right? That they all got up and left uh, Jerusalem uh, to, to stay Christians while being alive. It's good to be a Christian that's alive. Um, so, uh, conviction, you know, a foundational awareness of our own deep seated depravity and our complete or helpless or complete or hopeless and inability to overcome our sin nature ourselves. Uh, so we're at, are we at Teresa? Bob? Okay. Dan, are we at you? Uh, can you read John 16, seven through nine? Yes, sir. And I'll actually pull one up on here. King James Version, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send them unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Is that it? Yeah, that's good. So the Holy Spirit's like, first thing he brings about is conviction of sin. Right? You can't repent unless you're convicted. Right? That's kind of a prerequisite. Right, so that's why we harp on the bad news. If you're not preaching the bad news, people can't actually repent. You can't receive Christ unless you repent. You can't get converted. You can't perceive the kingdom. You can't be poor in spirit unless you know the bad news. Right? You don't know. You can't. You know, uh, repentance is doing the complete 180, and the entire universe is set up this way that if I turn one way and I'm facing something, I can't leave and go another way and not be facing something else. You can't just repent and not go to Christ. Repentance is turning to Christ, right? His ways, his lordship, uh, everything, right? So, uh, you know, what we read last week about the bad news, uh, did that which is good then, talking about the law, uh, bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. All right, so what we want to get people to, by the grace of God, which we can't get people to, but if we preach the gospel faithfully, is uh, what I think is the turning point in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 7, 24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Like, it's wicked, it's evil. Holy crap, what do we do? Oh, 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> then we could like, you actually shouldn't let up on, you know, uh, you know, helping people to get convicted and bringing about the law and understanding sin until they're like, if they still think they can do it, like, keep preaching sin. <laughs> keep preaching the bad news because they, if they don't ever get to that, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? They could never go to, oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. <laughs> they can never get there, right? So we have to be preaching something that brings about conviction. Uh, you can't exchange your life if you don't want an exchange, if you just want like a little bit better, if you just want a little, <coughs> little church and up. Uh, right? So confession means the same, the same thing as, so what did God already say about you? You're a sinner. You're wretched. You're no good. You're unrighteous. You're unclean. You're spoiled. You're damned to hell. You're a vessel of wrath and destruction. So unless you confess the same thing, you're not in agreement with God. Unless you're telling people of what God's already said, then they're not going to be in, in agreement. All right? Uh, I'll read that, Mark 1, 1, 5. And all the country of Judea was going... Uh, out with them and the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins right uh, that's what they were doing they were coming out and confessing their sins uh, you know we do it more in community now uh, but you know different church movements and movements within church history have done it in different ways uh, and you know the Catholics have a time of confession. You confess to the priest. You know, uh, I know different households do it differently where they have times of confession. Uh, the point is, like, if you don't, not just confessing to one another, right? So there's two, two avenues here. Um, you need to confess to God. You need the same thing, say the same thing he says. You need to be in agreement with him. And you need to confess that to other brothers and sisters appropriately. Or your shepherds, right? Um, so the parable of the Pharisee, you know, and the publican that we brought up earlier is uh, the Pharisee didn't have anything to confess. His perceptions were all wrong, right? Well, he did confess. He did thank God <laughs> that he wasn't like <laughs> these tax collectors and sinners, right? But what does the publican do? He beats his chest and says, like, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's who I am foundationally, Right? Uh, Acts 19, uh, 18 and 19, uh, that's in Ephesus, right? Uh, where they're, uh, you know, burning all their witchcraft books that they're coming and divulging their practices of what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. They're like, if they, you know, uh, if you're meeting with somebody and they're not like convicted, if they're not bringing about conviction, they're never going to come to confession and if you're not, number one, building a relationship where they could trust you to confess, uh, that's a, probably a problem. Um, but that's a secondary problem, that if they're not confessing, then they probably still have some ideas that they're not that bad of a person, right? If they don't want, like, cleansing and healing, then they don't think they need cleansing and healing of anything, of those things, right? Um you know, James 5, 5 16 uh, starts by confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed, right? So if you jump to pray for one another that you may be healed, like it actually doesn't work that way. If you don't confess your sins first, if you don't confess and then pray 
for one another, then you're not going to be healed. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's huge. You have to come to the same agreement that, of what God's already laid in his word. Then uh, point number three there. The four R's of conversion, repentance, reconciliation, renunciation, and restitution. So we already talked about repentance as the first command in all New Testament gospel presentations. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles. Uh, repentance brings reconciliation. We talked about Amos 3, that can two walk together unless they uh, are in agreement. Right? You can't walk with God unless you agree with what he agrees with. Mm-hmm. Right? So if people say, um, we'll bring this out in two workshops, uh, not this Thursday, but next week on Thursday, we'll, do, we'll deal with Christian objections uh, that we'll meet, and they'll say, like, well, I, can, uh, I love God, I don't need the church, is basically what they're saying. Well, what we have to tell them in uh, gentleness and, and kindness and in truth and love is that you don't love God if you're not part of the you're not part of the church if you're not in a church uh, and that means you don't love God so you're not in agreement with anything that God says as foundational and being part of a church community is that uh, but God is love yeah God is love read it in context it says if you don't love your brothers and sisters and by this we know love greater love has no this that you lay down your life for one another Right? Are you laying down your life uh, as Jesus said it, he is? Uh, not if you're not in community. Not if you're not in a body of Christ that's seeking to uh, actively uh, serve and, and be in community with one another in various ways. And that looks different in different communities, and that's fine. But if you're not in it, then you don't love God. So uh, they definitely don't confess You know what God... Um, what God calls them to in Scripture. Uh, they definitely don't have reconciliation with God and they don't have reconciliation with man, right? So, and then uh, renunciation, to disavow, publicly disavow, break all ties or connections, stand against, have no association, no shared files, uh, right? It's the leaving in and cleaving to follow, you know, starts in Genesis, that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, uh, and they'll we had weave together a new life in a marriage analogy. But uh, the same thing goes. Like if you're um, in the repentance, you can't turn from one thing and turn two things. You can't be divided, right? You can't live in the world and with Christ at the same time. Or you can't be, uh, you know, worldly and a Christian at the same time. You have to be actively uh, breaking ties with the world and being sanctified out of that. Right? There's no vacuums. I'm either like in the dining room, whatever this is, the living room, or I'm in the kitchen. I'm either in the house or I'm out of the house. I'm either like facing Teresa or I'm facing something else. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no like in-between neutrality ground. Uh, if you're a Christian, that specifically means that you're actively renouncing all ties with the world, your flesh, and the devil, and by the grace of God are working to continue to be sanctified that the rest of your life. You're continually breaking files, and, or breaking, breaking files, uh, you know, renouncing uh, every way of which is of your flesh, Satan, and the world, and joining yourself to God's ways and actively seeking that. 
right? And then restitution, given an equivalent compensation for loss, damage, or injury. Right? How much does Zacchaeus pay back? Four times. Four times. Why did he pay so much back? It's in God's law. If you actively, which means he saw himself as, well, what was he? What was his job? He was a tax collector. So uh, in Exodus 22, it lays a foundation uh, for restitution if you steal, right? How many days in jail do you have to spend? Oh, wait, there's no, there's no days in jail. Uh, what do you have to do? You have to pay it back. And if it's malicious, you have to pay back four times as much. Uh, I think four times or uh, pay it back plus four times. So five times, I think. I'd have to go back and look at it, but depends on what it was. Like if it was an accident, you have to pay, you just have to pay it back 100%. But you do have to make restitution. Uh, so Zacchaeus was saying that I actively stole maliciously and I'm going to pay back four times what I, what I stole. Right? So if people are like, uh, as we're... Yeah, we just got to convert the IRS. <laughs> Good luck. Um, so, you know, as we're like discipling and evangelizing to people, like if they're, if they're not making restitution, there's something horribly wrong. I, like I physically stole from people, and the people I could pay back, I, I did. Uh, more than what I, you know, I, don't, I didn't actually go to the full amount because I didn't have that much money. <laughs> but... You know, there is people like, uh, I know other people, but, you know, I stole time and energy from a good friend of mine at the time that gave me a job and nicely, on air quotes for the people on the podcast, laid me off because I was a lazy worker on my phone. <laughs> and I went back and I was like, hey, like, I really owe you. And I helped him remodel his house and stuff because, like, if you're not, like, if, if people don't have that much conviction, then they don't really think sin is that bad. And they're not really getting a life exchange, and they're not really getting Christ. Right? If there's no restitution, if there's no wanting to make amends, and you can't restore, like, I really couldn't restore this relationship with a guy, a friend that gave me a job, uh, if I didn't pay him back somehow, because I stole from him. He might have just, like, forgiven me and decided, but it'd always be in the back of his head to some degree. You know, not that he couldn't forgive me, and he couldn't work on the restoration, but if I don't pay back, then I don't really want a restoration, right? Like, if we're not, uh, if Christians aren't doing that, like, I remember uh, uh, the guy who, he's not a pastor at Apex anymore, but uh, now he's at another church, but his name's Jason Wing. I remember him telling a story, because he did the same thing, where he stole from a store, and he was going back and making restitution and paying back and saying, I stole this, and I stole this, and I want to pay for it. And uh, I think it was like the manager or something. He's like, he was really baffled by it. But uh, but it, the manager said like, you know, there's several other people that have come in uh, and told me the same thing, like that they that they're now Christians and that they want to pay back and make it right and uh, and that they stole. <laughs> That's great. Like uh, people should know, you know, what we're talking about like lifestyle evangelism is like. People will know that, like, obviously they're not going to take too kindly to you that hearing that you stole <laughs> at some point, uh, but that you want to make restoration and that you're making amends for it and that uh, you want to make it right is, like, a toll, a huge witness towards Christ. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what gospel are we preaching if we're not, like, when we talk about what are the types of uh, 
discipleship. There was information, formation, and impartation, right? If we're not forming in people, if we're not saying, like, if people are confessing, like, hey, yeah, like, I stole, like, 20 bucks from my brother in sixth grade, uh, you know, if we're not, like, encouraging them to pay that back, uh, you know, then uh, because that's God's law and that's God's standard, you know, with uh, the appropriate means, whether that's four times, then, like, we're not actually preaching Christ, right? So we need to be able to, like, bring that up as we're discipling people and we're telling people there's got to be a renunciation, there's got to be a restitution, right? So then, uh, this is still under repentance, you know, uh, the big one, you know, which is kind of the overarching theme is lordship, right? Uh, Luke 19 makes this, uh, Jesus makes this, talks about a parable where 10 uh, minas were given to people and the one, uh, one, it only brings up three, uh, three people. Uh, one guy turned one minas into, into 10, one guy five into five, and he says, well, was with faithful, will receive much. And the one guy that had one stored it away and said, because I knew you were a harsh ruler and you reap where you do not sow, I just put it in an envelope. I fear it says we're buried in the ground and here's your one back. And he says, uh, Jesus makes the example that because they weren't stewarding, because they weren't investing, and you could have put it in the bank and accrued interest, that Jesus makes the connection that he didn't want that person to rule over them. He says, you know, we will not have this man rule over us. Uh, you know, he, this will not be my Lord. I will not do it by God's standards. I, I will be in control of my own life. I am Lord. I am God. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide my destiny. I will do whatever the hell I want to do. This is the way people live their life and what we're uh, delivering them from or what Christ is delivering them from is slavery to their own lordship, to their own ideas of them being God. Uh, if they don't submit to Christ's lordship, it shows the quality of the gospel we're preaching and the quality of the gospel they're receiving if they're claiming to be Christians, right? Uh, you know, so... Um, You know, if we're not like, you know, showing people the radicalness of the lordship of Christ, of how they their entire life has to be exchanged, you know, uh, what is it? Second Corinthians, I think it's six twenty and six ten. I think, uh, you know, it says you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Like you were bought, like you are slaves of Christ. Uh, this is how one ought to regard us as slaves of Christ, right? As bond servants. Like, I don't have a will. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what my felt needs are. It doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that I submit, to, submit out of love to Christ, to his obedience, to his lordship, to his demands, to whatever he says. And uh, that's the gospel that we should be preaching, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't actually, like, even if you don't want to, guess what? You still have to. Uh, there's every day I wake up and I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Do I like have to be a Christian today? Like, could we just like not do this today? <laughs> like, I'd rather like sleep in and walk around barefoot in the woods and waste my life <laughs> and do whatever the hell I want to do. But uh, you know, from my fleshly perspective, unfortunately, like Christ redeemed me and I gotta like obey Him now. Um, 
So all of that's part of repentance. Like when we're talking and making it clear of what people need to repent from, it's their own lordship. And you need to go as far as the Lord demands and as far as he, as he says. And that's uh, renouncing everything, all ties. That means like maybe you can't play video games anymore. Maybe you can't waste your life on video games. Maybe you got to waste your life on reading scripture and knowing God deeper. Uh, <laughs> And evangelizing and reading become books. And reading yeah. books, reading books. Awesome. You know, so the heck, you know, uh, repent and believe. So the trust, the believing, clinging to, relying on, following, seeking to know, worship, loving, and obeying, right? Ask, Matthew 7 7, whoever asks will receive, right? That's continue to ask and will continue to receive. Uh, ask, receive, invite into residence. Uh, where are we at, Josiah? Uh, can you read John 1, 11 through 13? We might actually finish before 10. It's looking like it. Nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah, receiving Christ, being born again, uh, perceiving the kingdom, entering the kingdom, uh, would all fit in there, right? Um, I don't know if we have it on here. Uh, yeah, at the bottom of the page, John 3, 3 through 5. I'll read. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom or perceive the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's room a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, You're reborn to perceive and experience the kingdom. Anyone who doesn't receive Christ, doesn't believe in his name, isn't born uh, of water and the Spirit, of cleansed by the Holy Spirit, washed and given a new heart to receive Christ, to have faith, isn't in the kingdom, right? Entering in the kingdom. Uh, You know, and we kind of talked about that Revelation 3.20 about uh, he stands at the door knocking and that's spoken to churchgoers. But, you know, what it means to trust and have faith isn't like, so the world's idea and what most people's idea of like faith is just like this intellectual assent to some information. But faith in biblical terms is your entire life is heads, is dead set and is actively working towards and is trusting in, in every way, uh, you know, in real ways, right? Like... I trust God enough today to get out of bed and read his word because that's what's going to be the foundation for my life. So I'll try to do that first, (laughs) right? Uh, I'm trusting and I'm relying on and I'm believing that when God says that like the community of people you associate with in the church should be like a family uh, and that should be as close as the family, I'm trusting and believing that and not going out and uh, making as many friends out in the world as I used to. Right, uh, that I'm treating you guys as more as family than than uh, than my mom. So, uh, except on Mother's Day, <laughs> well, still on Mother's Day, because it's a Sunday. I might be busy, uh, but maybe I can send Daniel. <laughs> I'll be seeing your mom, <laughs> actually, on Mother's Day. Maybe not on Mother's Day, but anyways, uh, that's a side point. Right, so it's not it's not an intellectual sense because people say I I believe God I trust in Him, but what do they mean by that? What are their terms? What are they defining that as? Is does their whole life 
uh, define does the tree produce the fruit, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Uh, that's a good one. Uh, so, you know, people, everyone says that they believe and they have faith and they, they know God. Uh, but does it really, right? Do they really trust in God? Uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, I've never done this, but, you know, just an example. Like, do you really believe in God? Like, what do you spend your money on? Is your money spent on kingdom things? You know, first and foremost with a tithe to a, a church. Uh, that doesn't mean it has to be our church. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Are you tithing to a church and a body and a community of people that you're associating with? Is your time, like time, money? Those are probably the two biggest things that, uh, you know, I would think that dictate, you know, what people really believe and how they, like how they really spend their life and what they really believe and think. Like how do they spend their time and how do they spend their money? So uh, those are all things you can use to self-examine, uh, you know, as we, we evangelize and stuff uh, and make disciples. Um, so receiving Jesus restores fellowship, uh, you know, with God, which leads to justification and adoption. Um, so let's go. Where are we at? Let's finish that. That's pretty much the outline of the good news. Um, all right, so we have to preach the bad news. We have to let people know how bad it is, and we don't even go to the good news until they know how bad it is, until they're, they're screaming, like, if this is the case, who can be saved? And you tell them, well, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Uh, and then we can preach the good news. They're not actually ready to receive it. Um, so, uh, I added on here, we've got uh, the vital signs of life. What should I expect from this new life? The new birth versus sanctification. Uh, but I also put on the back of that page the 555 deal principle, which has the first five steps when entering the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, and the five vital signs of life, and five biblical examples or five patterns. Uh, but that's five for the baptism of the Spirit and seven... Uh, for the five steps. So, um, you know, because we're going to run into a lot of people that say, like, uh, you know, I'm, you know, as we get into Bible studies with people that want to mature in Christ, that's a good sign. But using these as a gauge to say, like, how much, like, are you really renouncing everything you have? Like, you know, it would, you know, first and foremost, hunger for God's word. Uh, if people aren't continually like dropping other things to read more of the Bible, especially people who have, uh, this is my perception or this is my opinion, you know, especially people who have grown up in the church and claim to be Christians, uh, if they don't start like seeing things and getting discipled and wanting to mature, and if they don't start dropping things to read more scripture, like that's a hard case to deal with. That's hard people to deal with because it means that their love for Christ is not very high. Now there's things that you might have to deal with like low reading and low discipline which comes over time and as long as they're being sanctified in that, that's good and optimistic to to have. Uh, you know, I deal with people who uh, like it's hard to get it through their heads that like to show them that their family failed. They've been in the church for like 29 years or something. 
and uh, that they've never read the Bible, like not even a chapter, that means your family failed. Your dad failed you. <laughs> and you need to read the Bible. And you need to start like 29 years ago. <laughs> uh, and you're like way behind. Uh, you know, and how can you even be assured of like anything in the Christian faith if you're just relying on other people's opinions? Right? You don't even, you don't even know. Uh, and if you're not like working towards, you know, setting aside other things to read more of God's word to know more than like, what are you doing? Like, uh, that's a huge red flag. Uh, and that's the, you know, I always start with people of like how to read the Bible. You know, anytime I get like a second meeting with somebody, even if they're an atheist, I'd say like, what do you know about the Bible? Uh, and usually it's a little bit or have some ideas and you get to the question. Second question is, oh, have you ever read it? The answer is usually no, or a little bit or some parts or I've read the Gospels or something. Well, why don't you start by like reading it? That'd be a good place, right? <laughs> you would think. Uh, so, you know, but then as we'll just list these for because uh, you got the 555 deal on here. But you should all know these lifestyle changes, desire for the things of God, including sacraments, uh, you know, all of God's things. John 10, 10, Christ came to have life and have it abundantly, not just a little bit, not just like Jesus take the wheel. Uh, you know, sometimes when I'm in trouble. Pursuit of biblical Christian fellowship and accountability and witnessing or proclaiming Christ. Um, and I'm just throwing out these out here so that you guys can uh, know them, though we're not going to actually go into these right now. Uh, how do people grow in grace? How do we get started? Uh, the Word, the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the Church. There's no, there's no other way, there's no other delivery system that God uses uh, to deliver grace to people or stream grace to people outside of those three. Right? There's no, that never happens outside of those three. So helping people get out of a... Uh, I guess, pietistic view of things into a more like, you know, some people, you know, especially this is going to come up in uh, people who are saying, you know, in Christian objections, right? A lot of it boils down to, I don't need the church. I don't need to do these things. I don't need to read the word and all these things. Well, like God just doesn't forgive your sins, right? Like God himself became incarnate in man and did something to forgive your sins. And that was his grace to you, and he deli he continues to deliver that grace in the real world, uh, largely through like the Bible, <laughs> like that's like the one of the biggest graces that we have, so much so that Peter says that we're so much more assured of the prophetic word uh, than those who uh, like witnessed, you know, the, the the Mount of Transfiguration of Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh, God Himself transfigured on the mountain we have something even better than that. And that's the scriptures. That's pretty crazy. Uh, I think Peter knew what he was talking about, though. Um, you know, the spirit and the church. And we should all be looking to grow and grow and grow in those. Uh, you know, so the conclusion here, um, you know, is that like as we preach, like the gospel does demand a response. 
right? As we preach, we're telling people to repent. We're telling people to turn from their lives. You can receive a new life in Christ. You can exchange your life. But, and, and God is offering that to you, but you also have to receive it. You have to take it, right? So that's why it's so huge that we get a second meeting with people and, and give them information and contact them uh, because we're not trying to get them to say a sinner's prayer. We're not trying to like, people already have formulated ideas of they're pretty good people. They don't need that much. They just like have felt needs and desires. But, you know, if God's calling them, they will meet with us again. And they might not join our church, uh, most likely won't, but we might plant a seed and they might join another church of God. They will join another church and they will become an uh, intricate part of a community if God's calling them, right? They will have a life exchange. I don't know the depths and level of their sanctification. Only God knows that. Uh, but, but that's the gospel, you know, we're going to preach. Uh, that they could have, you know, essentially we're telling them, you know, you could have a completely different life. Like, your life sucks. Even if you think your life is great, well, you're just blind and you're a fool, right? Your life sucks. You're, leading, you're living uh, a meaningless, pitiless life outside of Christ. Uh, and it, it really does suck because you're basing it off of your own works and your own accomplishments and whether you, in your ideas, you relate that to being reconciled to God or just being somebody in the world. Uh, that sucks. That really sucks. Um, but the good news is that you don't have to. So, uh, you know, as we go out there, we have to get people to understand that gospel, right? So, that pretty much concludes us for tonight. We wrapped up before 10 p.m., which is pretty amazing. 28 minutes before. So, does anybody have any questions on that? Everyone, everybody looks pretty tired. Yeah. So Buddha's last words were, "Behold, amongst this is my last advice to you: all component things in the world are changeable; they are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation." Yeah. Keep working. And that's other religions. That was like Buddha's last words: "Work hard to gain." I'll keep trying. Who, who said about that you give your brother seven times seventy? It means not really seven times seventy, it means always. Yeah. Probably shouldn't be counting. <laughs> I know. Although I do keep an Excel spreadsheet. All I know is pretty close. Yeah. That's another. That's one more, Sam. <laughs> You're right on the line. Like, I can't do it again. Yeah. You all should get a lot of, uh, like, res like, a common response from people is like, uh, why they can't let go of like bitterness and hurt is because that person won't admit that they're wrong, right? But that's not really like a valid reason or response, or that's not like valid obedience towards Christ and His commands. Uh, 
like if everybody like if I had to like go and ask everybody to forgive me for everything I've ever done like I don't have enough time there's too many people and there's too many things I mean the idea behind like karma is totally just like revenge yeah I love revenge so I mean we're not we'll close in prayer we'll close in prayer